Hello, I'm Matthew Gwyther and welcome to this Jericho podcast, which is made in association with Stiefel. This time we're discussing the crisis of democratic capitalism. This is the title of the new book by the Financial Times lead economics commentator Martin Wolf. His book analyzes in great detail what he thinks has gone wrong with the system used by most of us in the free West. It's a great read, and he shows us how citizenship and a shared faith in the common good are not just romantic slogans, but the only ideas that can sustain political and economic freedom. And there's even plenty of Abraham Lincoln in there from of the people, by the people, for the people to his wonderful expression about us all needing to use the better angels of our nature. After my interview with Martin, I discussed the themes with star economist Nouriel Roubini, aka Dr. Doom. He's recently published the book Mega Threats, The Ten Trends That Imperil Our Future and How to Survive Them, is not exactly a barrel of laughs and not for those of an anxious disposition but he did come up with an extraordinary explanation for why China will own Siberia in years to come. Apparently, Siberian women prefer Chinese guys because they're not permanently drunk and have much better financial prospects. So, first up, Martin Wolf of the Financial Times. I wanted to start with with your final paragraph, actually, where you say, and it is a sombre thought, that this is a moment of, of great fear and faint hope. And there's much in the book that, that is quite pessimistic, not least the, the point you make that democratic capitalism is, very, is a very fragile thing. But I wonder when you thought it was at its most stable and best located in what you describe as the, the narrow corridor of its existence. When were the kind of the good years? Well, the basic story here is democratic political systems in the modern form representative systems are themselves very recent. So they evolved in the course of the 19th century. And it's only at the very end of the 19th century into about 1930, 1940, with a few exceptions, that a large number of countries had universal suffrage democracies. And of course, it's really quite late in that process when women had the vote, which is a pretty big addition. So you could say that it's the ideas have been around and much debated for about two centuries and they have been in place for a century. And I would say that in the West, at least, the heyday, the the time when it seemed most stable, was actually during my childhood, Um, namely from the Second World War till perhaps 1970 or so. And I think that was so because, one, they seemed extraordinarily successful. Economies were booming. Uh, We had full employment, which no one had expected. The welfare state had been established. This wasn't a big burden because there weren't many old people uh, and full employment helped so much. The war had been won. The Great Depression was ancient history. And the huge class conflicts before that, which had emerged in the 19th century between the new organized working class and the capitalists, had been resolved within this democratic political framework and the mixed economy, which was still very clearly 
a market-led economy, but with a substantial public sector. In many ways, it's a personal book, isn't it? You open it with the point that your parents were both refugees from the reverse of democratic capitalism, of fascism in the, in the 30s who came here. But one of the things I find interesting about it is your description of when it's working well as a civilized civil war. Just explain what you, you meant by that with the, you know, the, the implied tensions within it. There are multiple tensions, but to start off with what is a democratic system? Well, the votes determined, and this varies in different countries how they determine it, but they determine who the legitimate government consists of. But that's only the first step. That government must be accepted as legitimate. It must be accepted as legitimate by the losers without fighting over it. That is the, the single most important thing. There are many other conditions for it. But the single most important thing about a, a normal civilized democracy is that without violence, you accept that the people who won, won. And therefore, you have a moral obligation and a legal obligation and a political obligation to accept their rule. But for that, you had a you had a sort of war. It wasn't a peaceful war, but the election campaign, election campaign consists of you arguing that these are truly terrible people who are going to do truly terrible things, and you go and you're truly wonderful people who are going to do truly wonderful things. And then when you when the election is over and you've lost, you have to say, well, these truly terrible people have won, and they're entitled to rule, and we've got to accept that, and we become the loyal opposition. And now. The election campaign is a sort of symbolic but peaceful civil war. It's a fight over the future of the country for the next four or five years and perhaps longer. Recently, the Pew Research Institute in the States has, has said that a median of 70% of adults across 19 countries say their kids are going to be worse off than them. And in the UK, actually, it's higher at, at 72%. Why has this happened? And what are the failures of democratic capitalism as opposed to the successes that you probably felt in the 40s and 50s and 60s that you were going to be better off than your mum and dad and that your kids, it would serve them well? Why, why has that happened, do you think? A very large part of my book, the dominant part, as I'm an economist, is about that question. But the, it links with the, the political questions to make clear why it's so important with the idea that ultimately, for most people, the single most important thing, it's not the only important thing, there are lots of other things, but the single most important thing about a political system in which they're going to give consent is that it gives them prosperity and security and gives their children prosperity and security. And if it doesn't do that, they're going to feel embittered and disappointed and insecure and they're going to start squabbling among themselves and who is being most badly treated, worst treated, and politics becomes a zero-sum game and you're in a really serious mess. So the question is, why did this happen? And I think there are several different forces at work. The first, which I think is just genuinely true, is that the economic opportunities of the 50s and 60s were, and I developed this at some length, one-offs. 
they were extraordinary and they couldn't be repeated. So a slowdown in growth was more or less inevitable. We'd exploited a whole range of technological opportunities created in the previous 50, 60 years, and they weren't going to be repeated. The second was that the Western world inevitably was losing its monopoly of know-how in all the advanced technologies in industry. Again, that couldn't possibly be prevented. In the end, the people of China and India said, well, we're going to work out how to do this. So we didn't have this huge monopoly rent to extract and to distribute. The third and these were inevitable things, was, is deindustrialization. I became increasingly aware in the course of writing this book that the development of modern democracy came out in very important respects out of the modern industrial economy and the emergence of the organized working class. And that was very strongly related to the emergence of huge factory systems, huge systems of employment, which were a very large number of workers were together, organized together, worked together naturally, and they had power, hold up power on their employers, because if they stopped working, the factories didn't work and employers went bankrupt. So they had real power. And out of that came the organized working class, but not only the unions, but also parties like the Labour Party and the Democratic Party in America also had such similar roots. And so did the Socialist Party, SPD in Germany. There were many examples. Then along came deindustrialization. This is, may not be clear to most people, but the dominant reason for it was not trade, though it was important. The dominant reason is that productivity growth in manufacturing has been extraordinarily rapid. And the rate of growth of demand for manufactured products has not been that rapid because basically pretty well everybody in the developed world has all the obvious manufacturers already. So we get a, a replacement level demand, not new demanders in the 50s and 60s. Take the British case, this is roughly right, the share of the labor force in industry has fallen over the last 50 years to a third of what it was before. It's now 10%. So that old industrial working class has just been destroyed by economics. And then there have been policy choices, economic liberalization, particularly financial liberalization, transformed the way companies work. Globalization, I think, not so much of trade, but of foreign direct investment undermined the monopoly power of workers really very, very decisively as they firms could increasingly credibly move elsewhere. And that gave great opportunities to Chinese workers and workers around the world, but deprived uh, people of a certain opportunity here. And finally, and perhaps most important in a way, in the last 20 years, We've seen, particularly since the financial crisis, a staggering and not fully understood decline in underlying productivity growth. So the growth of our economies has just collapsed. And we don't fully understand why that has happened. It becomes increasingly difficult to get majority on the assumption we'll liberalize the economy and you'll all be better off, which was, after all, the promise of Thatcherism. And for a while, it looked quite plausible. So effectively, uh, I argue that conservative parties have had inevitably, if they want a majority, to add to that traditional conservative philosophy, 
essentially majoritarian identity issues of various kinds, social conservatism, anti-immigration, all the rest of it. And of course, the left, for various reasons, has gone in the same direction, I think partly because the trade unions are so weak. So we've got this other aspect of our politics. And once you get into the field of identity politics as a dominant form of democracy, it becomes, I think, much more bitter and much more difficult to compromise on. Now, the motto of the book on the first page is the ancient Greek saying nothing in excess. But I wonder if if you asked a Marxist or if you asked a sort of Extinction Rebellion type person, they would say that it's a fundamental of capitalism by its very nature to go for excess. It's, It's rapacious in terms of the way in which it uses people and the Earth's resources. It's got a kind of winner takes all mentality, particularly extreme American forms of capitalism. So doesn't it end up, you know, eating its own tail? I I have two answers to that. One, if you only have democracy and no market economy, you're going to get an autocratic form of democracy, I think, because that's a system. That's why I'm not a Marxist. If you've got a system in which there's no private property, all economic decisions are ultimately social decisions. They're going to be taken by the the system that is structured to make social systems, which is ultimately politics. So all economic decisions whatsoever will be politicized. And the people who control politics will therefore control politics and the institutions of government and the economy. And this will become an autocracy. And I'd like to point out there are no exceptions to that rule. So as a proposition, if somebody comes along to me and say, yeah, we can have a fully socialist society and we can be completely democratic, apart from the logic I put forward, I would say, show me. It doesn't exist. So actual democracies have been rooted in some element of the freedom, independence, decentralization, or autonomy of an economy rooted in and defending and defending private property. So in that sense, I would say capitalism is a necessary condition for a a market economy, is what I mean, for, for a democracy. On the other hand, as you rightly say, if you get too much of it, the people are driven into desperation. The ultra-rich become increasingly the controllers of politics through political donations and so forth. And instead of having the socialist autocracy, you have plutocracy. That's not democracy either. And I think I would argue that America is now pretty well a plutocracy. And there's lots of data in the book to support that. What? happen to the better angels of the nature of the elite you do get people who you know talk the cabri or the lever talk now the guy who's been banged up in the bahamas was supposed to have had sort of vague ideas about redistribution of wealth and things like that but by and large they they don't seem to find the better angels of of their nature which is a beautiful phrase isn't it it is it is of course one of lincoln's most Mm. extraordinary phrase what a genius he was Mm. so This may be the most pious hope because historically, the people who held power in the 19th century, the the wealthy landowners and the wealthy business people later, didn't give up their power voluntarily. They were forced to. And they were forced to by organized interest groups and political movements, which were so strong that they had to give in. They had to give in because they needed the cooperation of these people as their workers. And they were operating, fortunately, within uh, a progressive economy, not as progressive as we would have liked, but progressive, and within a framework of 
law and political process, which required quite a large scale consent. You couldn't operate a capitalist system with pure coercion. So in the end, compromises were reached and the wars reinforced that. You know, the simple truth is if you have mass mobilization of the public, of the, of the people, you have to give them something for it. I mean, there's no accident that the welfare state was born out of the Second World War. In the last half century, we've sort of undone this. And part of that is for the reasons I've given, just the economic process itself. They need these this cooperation less than they do. One beautiful example, which I think I had there, but I can't remember. When GM, General Motors, was the biggest company in America, it had a huge plant in um, Detroit, if I remember correctly. And over the country, I think the figure is something like that. It employed about 600,000 workers. It was an army, a huge army. And it had to be paid and motivated and mobilized. And they were all in the US and they were organized. But just look at the people who run Apple. Apple has essentially no physical capital in the US at all, just as a building and a few shops. Its assets are essentially its know-how. What it creates in the US is created by a relatively small number of exceptionally brilliant and very highly paid people. And the production system is across the world, and much of it in China, but not only there. And these workers can, if necessary, all be replaced. And of course, it spins off massive income for the shareholders. And Apple, I think, is a relatively good version of this, but this is going to be repeated. One of the big reasons for the change, I think, is that the the nature of the the social organization of business has been transformed. And that's really impossible to change because these are com companies are what they are. Tech companies are just different from the old manufacturing companies. And they have been told, and they, I think, really do believe that all the wealth they've created is their achievement. And it had nothing to do with anybody else, and certainly not with society that really owe anything. And in addition, they have been told that anything done by government or through political process is corrupt or predatory upon them. Uh, I quote this uh, remarkable remark of Warren Buffett, in which he says, there is a class war and my class is winning. The danger then is we are on an explosive path towards plutocracy. Let's talk about the company, the corporation, because you talk about detached capitalism and sociopathic companies. But we've certainly, in recent years, I, I remember hearing you talk about corporate responsibility 20 plus years ago, and you were a little bit skeptical of it then, but now it's developed into ESG. And I suppose one of the standard bearers of that is... Um, is Paul Polman, who was the head of Unilever. He seems to think that he accepts that there's a crisis out there, but he thinks it's not going to be politicians and government that fix it, it's going to be business. And he said, the political system that's been designed to deal with global issues dates from the time of Bretton Woods, that was in 1944, when 80% of the global wealth was in Europe and the US. Now we can be cynical about politicians, we can be mad about them, we can laugh at them, but that doesn't serve anything. So we in business have to fill that void. I don't think it, it's at all plausible. I mean, there's a reason why I emphasize democracy. Democracy is a political system bound up with a territory, with a legitimacy and a relationship with society, which gives that legitimacy. There is a profound issue, which I do discuss, that if the democracies are national, 
and the, the world, you know, the world is global. How do you make action legitimate at the global level where we need it, clearly need it? But I don't think you can get away from the fact that business is problematic as a, as a solution to this problem for the following reasons. One, it's not part of the democratic process. It's not even a citizen. I mean, basically, a business, a corporation is a legal figment created for very valuable, inevitable economic purposes, but it has no political legitimacy in, within the democratic framework. And my view is that it should have less than it does. Second, the big businesses of the world don't begin to cover all the economic activity of our societies, which is, if you look at the world as a whole, invested as well in immense numbers of smaller businesses, family businesses, and all the rest of it. The economy, yes, has a huge imprint from big businesses, but that's very far from everything. And third, and most important, business doesn't have a coherent and clear social purpose. It could be improved. I, I accept that. But in the end, business is structured to make profits and to hand over those, a significant part of their profits to shareholders who are all over the world. And uh, what the ob objectives of the shareholders are from a social point of view is, is to put it mildly, ambiguous and unclear. If the business starts doing things that the shareholders of companies find not to their commercial interest, sooner or later, certainly in the, in the Anglo-Saxon world, but even elsewhere, it'll, they're going to be stopped. Paul Pullman won't be allowed to run his business against the interests of shareholders, and that's structural. Now, I do discuss changing the structure of business and the incentive for business. You can change that. But business, therefore, is neither legitimate nor effective and cannot be legitimate or effective in solving the problems we have. What do you, did you think then when Cameron, the week before the Scottish independence referendum, went to the retailers, you know, saying, come on, you know, you need to put your heads above the parapet because I think we're going to lose this. And I think a few of them did. But then when he tried it again with Brexit, they weren't interested. And I wonder why that was. And I think it could be because if, if they were decent business people, they'd know very well that within their own organisations, never mind the shareholders, they would have had differing opinions on that, wouldn't they? They feel, and I think rightly in a way, that if they're, they get too engaged in political issues, it will be very divisive because they will be seen as the fat cat employers telling the rest of the people what to do. Who are they? They weren't elected. It will be divisive within their own businesses, and they won't carry much authority because they're not really seen as honest brokers. And for that reason, they thought, and I did discuss it during the Brexit campaign, I said to business people who I knew were very opposed, why don't you explain what will be the consequences? And the answer basically was nobody will believe us and they'd hate us. How about this then? Universal adult suffrage in its purest form is a referendum, isn't it? And that led to Brexit. And Brexit, as is becoming increasingly clear, palpably was an error. Well, I'm against referenda. And this then gets to the question of what you think is a satisfactory democratic order, which I do discuss. I think the ultimate legitimacy in government must come from the consent of the public, counted in some credible way. I don't think our electoral system is very good. 
But that's not the same thing as believing that you will get good government, which is also quite important. People want sane, competent government will come from that. But if we want to do referenda, instead of having a one-off organized in this particularly bad way with a particularly silly resolution, uh, it was a whole series of errors, you'd go the Swiss way, which is institutionalized referenda, make the people aware that that's an important part of their functions, have really careful consideration of what the terms of the vote should be. When people voted leave, they had no idea what they were voting for. Now, finally, I wanted to ask you about the issue of competence, because that seems in your columns over the last couple of years to be the thing that gets you more than anything else, a fundamental lack of governmental competence. And it seems to me that's where politics is rather different from from business. If you're incompetent when you run a business, it goes bust and it's all over, isn't it? That's one reason you li- I like competition. But in particularly in, in our country in recent years, we, we seem to have seen staggering levels of incompetence and yet they but we did get rid of them in the end i mean you could say if you're an optimist like the market democracy gets if it's allowed to work it gets to the right point in the end so trump was defeated he his position is clearly weaker now than it was if he'd been putin god knows what would have happened right nobody can elect vote putin out and look what he's doing similarly We chose Brexit, stupid, but if you look at the polls, it's pretty clear. The majority is sort of shifting in the view that maybe this wasn't such a smart idea we were lied to. Well, they're learning too late. That means that there's opportunities opening up. Then we got Theresa May, who didn't know on earth what to do with this referendum outcome, and I sort of sympathize with her. She was a perfect, I think, decent person, but out of her depth. Boris is, of course, mendacious. I think that's a fair description but very charismatic. But he was found out in the end, and we got rid of him. They got rid of him peacefully. And his successor uh, lasted for 44 days, I think. So that's pretty successful. And her government was removed without any violence, didn't require a coup. It was perfectly peaceful. She accepted the legitimacy. These are great achievements. Just think what happens in most countries in this situation. You know, lots I disagree with this government on. Lots. But they're not crooks in that way. I mean, they can add up. They sort of know more or less some of the things within the conservative framework where they should be going. They're not pretending that budgets don't matter. And I would say similarly on the Labour side, the repudiation, in my view, entirely justified by the British people of the Corbyn programme has brought forward a team that's not very exciting, but Starmer is a perfectly sensible, sane person. Rachel Reeves, again, is a perfectly sensible, sane person. The government will maybe not exciting, maybe not be a FDR again because we've not got there yet. But I actually think in a strange way, real optimism here, that the self-correction element of democracy has been coming forward as long as we allow it to continue to do the crucial job of getting rid of the least competent. There are problems, however. Democracy tends to make making decisions very slow. We are not very decisive. We can't do what the Chinese do in sort of building railways. We can't do that except in wartime. I think we could if we mobilized the people better because we did do it in war. Mm. But nonetheless, I would say 
there has been a return, some return, in the Western countries more broadly, to the idea, well, actually, having a bureaucracy that knows what it's doing, having politicians who recognize reality, where we are, is actually worthwhile. So I'm a bit encouraged about that. Next, we hear from Nouriel Roubini, The Economist. Well, Professor Roubini, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on your book, Mega Threats, The Ten Trends That Imperil Our Future and How to Survive Them. I think I wanted to ask you first, you describe the world as being on a slow motion train wreck course. I mean, I wonder to what extent do you think that this is the result of a failure of democratic capitalism as a model, as opposed to sort of alternative methods of of running states? Certainly, there are a number of dysfunctions of democratic uh, capitalism, but um, I do not believe that alternative economic or political system can deliver us uh, better economic and uh, social outcomes. I think it was uh, Winston Churchill that said that uh, democracy is the worst uh, political system apart from the alternative. Uh, There is an alternative that's been pushed by China, one of a political system that is increasingly authoritarian and an economic system that is increasingly one of uh, state uh, capitalism. I think that it faces significant challenges. China was accelerating its economic growth when it was uh, liberalizing its economy towards a market economy. And it was actually even liberalizing, if not its political system, its social system, where individuals at least had slightly more uh, rights uh, of expression and so on. But uh, since Xi Jinping has come to power, we've had the reversal more authoritarian, more state capitalism. Growth has fallen from 10% to 5 recently to 3%, and many of the problems of China are now more severe. So we have a dysfunctional liberal democracy, and we have to reform it in the US, in Europe, and the West. But uh, I do not believe that uh, the Chinese model or any other one that is uh, authoritarian and not of a mixed economy of the sort we have in the West uh, is a better alternative. I suppose what the Chinese and Xi Jinping would say to that was that when you have a country of the the size of China, then a degree of sort of state planning becomes absolutely necessary. And if if we're going to cope with the greatest overarching threat, one of one of climate change, then a very sort of dictatorial interventionist state is actually quite necessary. That is certainly the argument uh, that they make. I think it's flawed, you know. US is a country of uh, 330 million people, not as large as China, but, you know, more diverse ethnically, culturally, religiously, and so on than China, where you have mostly Chinese Han and some minorities of uh, Muslim, Uyghurs, Tibetans. Indian is actually more diverse ethnically and religiously than China, and has a population close to the size of China. It's a bit a bumpy democracy, but uh, a reasonably successful one. Yes, uh, China for a few decades was growing faster than India, but now it's slowing down while um, India is accelerating its economic growth. So in the race between China 
and uh, in India for a while, China was the rabbit and India was the tortoise. So in the sprint, uh, China seemed to be doing better, but now in the long run marathon, uh, I think Chinese growth is going to slow down to two, 3%. Growth of India is more like uh, six, 7% and can grow more with reforms. And I think that the Indian model eventually might be more sustainable than the one of China. And by the way, the model of a lot of East Asia was in the early stage of development uh, countries like South Korea, Indonesia, Malaysia, even Taiwan used to be authoritarian. Once they reached middle income, like many others, they became uh, more democratic. While uh, in China, the transition from a more authoritarian to a more democratic with uh, reaching middle income status did not occur. Some sense China, therefore, is an exception. I wonder one of the disillusions of people with democratic capitalism that's led to the wave of populism is this sense that it's become rigged, that those who do consistently well from it are continue to do so, but at expense of those in the blue collar middle classes that haven't done so well as a result of globalization in the last 20 to 30 years. Yes, and that's um, one of the severe problems of liberal democracy and democratic capitalism that we have to address. And if we don't address it, as I put in the book, we'll have a serious threat to liberal democracy and also a market-oriented mixed economy with a welfare state. But take China. China was authoritarian and still more authoritarian. China mixed uh, market reform with state capitalism. And there was such a rise in income and wealth inequality and of corruption that actually it became a threat to the Communist Party. And one of the reasons why Xi Jinping came to power and then he cracked down on it because there was too much inequality and there was too much corruption. So the same problems we have in liberal democracies uh, and market capitalism, uh, we have them in uh, authoritarian regimes uh, that have a different economic model. So this issue of uh, a small elite of people becoming more successful, more wealthy, rising income and inequality occurs uh, across the board, uh, across very different uh, political and economic systems. Populism rages against people exactly like you, doesn't it? Because what you're suggesting, I think, accurately in your book is that the only way we can overcome these threats is by a degree of global cooperation. But then they would say, well, look look where globalisation has, has got us. You know, there's Professor Rubini, he's a citizen of the world, from Turkey, Tehran, Israel, the USA. But actually, the only way we're ever going to sort this out is by being selfishly nationalistic, thinking about our own interests first, above, you know, any attempts at sort of cooperation and, you know, indeed conciliation with other countries. Yes, absolutely. There is a nationalist backlash against uh, globalization and against uh, globalists that are considered to be economic and financial elites. But as I point out in uh, the book, uh, many of these mega threats uh, have a global dimension. You cannot resolve the global climate change at the national level. You can reduce your net emission to zero. If no one else does it, you still add all the damage and you pay the costs. Things like global pandemics and global health, they spread like wildfire across the world. And the response to COVID-19, everybody doing their own was not really ideal. 
Of course, whenever we have economic and financial crisis, there is severe contagion across countries, uh, not only when the ground zero of the crisis is a large country like US, Europe, or uh, China, but even when there are smaller economies that can have uh, global effects, like there was a risk of Brexit in 2015, leading to a dominant effect and the collapse of the Eurozone if it had occurred, and so on and so on. And global security, of course, is an issue that requires cooperation between uh, global power, unless you have a global hegemon that can provide uh, global public goods. In the past was the British Empire, in the 20th century was the US, providing these global public goods of free trade, uh, mobility of labor, capital, globalization, global security in Europe, in Asia. But now you have a rise of China. There are other great powers, not just China and US, India, Europe, and so on. So we live in a world in which there is a, a rivalry between these global powers, and that leads to lack of provision of these global public goods, unfortunately. Now, you mentioned the UK there, and the role that historically we've we've played via empire. Now, I wonder where you think we are at the moment and what our prospects are. I mean, I think we fret still here and are very divided about the results of Brexit, but you do talk a lot in the book about debt and the, and, and the threat of debt. So where do you think we are both economically and politically in the UK at the moment, and how would you view our prospects over the next decade? Well, in the short run, uh, the UK is having the worst economic outlook among advanced economies. Inflation is still double digits. And even the Bank of England is predicting six consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. So it's not going to be a soft landing or even a softish landing. It's really hard landing. And it's real stagflation. Recession for a year and a half with inflation double digit or close to it. That's what stagflation is. And uh, why, why the UK is worse off than even uh, Europe and the Eurozone or the United States, it had the same kind of exposure to oil and energy shocks like the rest of Europe. I think that there was an additional self-inflicted negative supply shock that was the Brexit decision that reduced the potential growth increase the cost of production, and by restricting uh, trade in goods, in services, even the net migration of uh, skilled labor to the UK, that has had a significant stagflationary effect of reducing further growth and increasing cost of production and inflation. So this is a prime example of what happens when you have uh, deglobalization how you shoot yourself in the foot. Would you suspect that in the long run, the UK would re-enter the EU or not? If it's not going to re-enter, there are options that are effectively variants of what uh, are the deals that the EU has done with Switzerland, Norway, with Turkey, you know, free trade area, custom unions, effective access to the single market. If you accept all the rules and regulation, including those regarding migration, like in the case of Switzerland, or a custom union like Turkey. I think politically in the short run, it's going to be very hard even for uh, Labour to reverse Brexit. If they want to come to power, they cannot push for Brexit officially. Maybe the best is going to happen to the UK is going to have uh, what people call as uh, Brino, Brexit in name only. 
you're going to integrate yourself with Europe short of returning formally to the European Union so that you get the benefits. But that implies accepting all sorts of rules uh, of Europe and not having any say at the table in terms of what those rules and regulations are. Now, one of the other interesting things I wanted to ask you is that both you and Martin Wolf suggest in your work that there was a kind of a golden age, maybe, you know, the post-war years up until the late 1980s, when things seemed to be going so much better, when there weren't these real anxieties around you. Do, yeah. do, do, you, do you feel that looking back to the years of your youth, if not carefree, then that, that things were working better then than they are now? Yes, I do, you know, and I point out in the book, when I was growing up between late 50s and early 80s, first 25 years of my life between Middle East and Europe, I never worried about uh, war among great powers or nuclear war. You know, after the detente in the early 70s and Nixon going to China, the risk of war between the US and China or Soviet Union or a nuclear confrontation was already low, went to close to zero. You know, I never even thought about climate changes. Temperatures in the 60s and 70s were barely above uh, pre-industrial levels. Never even heard about global pandemics. The last one had been Spanish flu in 1918. Unless you read the history book, you didn't even know about it. Never worried about AI destroying uh, most jobs or even the human species were in the middle of an AI winter. Never worried about deglobalization and trade wars as there was trade liberalization. GATT, WTO, European Union, NAFTA, and we actually went to hyper-globalization when China, Russia, India, emerging markets joined the global labor force. Never worried about debt crisis, private or public, because debt ratios were low as a share of GDP growth was strong. Never worried about implicit liabilities or implicit debt as we had the growing uh, supply of uh, young workers and the elderly were still in limited numbers. So we didn't have the massive unfunded liability of pension and healthcare system for aging population. And we had also meaningful migration, increasing the labor supply. You know, economic cycles were mild. They didn't worry about another Great Depression. We had the stagflation of the 70s, followed by a few decades of great moderation. Financial crises were rare uh, because we had the capital controls, financial regulation and supervision, within a toxic financialization, with financial repression, and so on. And most uh, advanced economies were liberal democracies. Yeah, center-right parties, center-left, but not the kind of polarization you have between right and left, between Labour and Tories, between Democrats and Republicans, and so on, that we get right now. And uh, right now we also have a backlash against liberal democracy, extreme populist party of the either right or left coming to power all over the world. There were authoritarian regimes, yeah, China, Soviet Union, were poor countries, but uh, middle income to advanced economies were increasingly demographic. So in 1945 and the early 80s, I would say, not that there were not tons of problems in the world, but you know, these 10 mega threats were not even in the back of my mind, frankly, and they have all materialized to some extent uh, in the last 20 years. That's why we tend to project the future as if it's going to be close to the recent past. And we've had 75 years of relative peace, progress, prosperity since World War II. 
but I would split that period in two stages. One that was truly of relative peace, progress, and prosperity, and a second one in the last uh, 20 years or so, where we are increasingly seeing uh, the emergence of um, mega threats. And I would argue that our current period and the near future looks more like the period between um, 1914 and 1945. That period was preceded by the Industrial Revolution and the first era of globalization that did not prevent World War I, followed by the Spanish flu, followed by the stock market crash of 29, the Great Depression, inflation, deflation, hyperinflation, trade wars, currency wars, financial crisis, debt crisis, meltdowns, depression of unemployment, 25%, and then the rise of power of Nazis in Germany, fascists in Italy, Franco in Spain, authoritarians in Japan, and then with World War II and we got the Holocaust. And by the way, those 30 years were ugly, but uh, compared to today, there are other mega threats that at that time did not even exist. At that time, in 1914 and 1945, there was no risk that climate change would destroy the planet. There was no risk that AI would destroy uh, jobs. It was pre-computer era. There were no implicit liabilities coming from aging. We barely created social security in the 30s in the US and people were dying before they would even qualify for social security. And uh, however nasty World War I and World War II were, there were conventional wars. Yes, World War II ended with US getting the bomb and hitting uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but that was the end of World War II. If today, there would be a conflict between great powers um, from conventional will rapidly end up unconventional with thousands of nuclear weapons uh, hitting each other. So if stuff were to happen, it's going to be much worse than 1914 and 1945. And 1914 to 1945 was a 30 years of total, total nightmare by any standard. So we take for granted peace, prosperity, and progress, but we shouldn't, because unless we deal with these threats, unless we stop kicking the can down the road, unless we stop keeping on pushing the snooze button and going back to be zombies asleep and ignoring it, these are real threats that are affecting each other and can end us in a much worse situation than even those nightmare 30 years between 1914 and 45. Uh, let's be honest about it. Now, you mentioned conflict there, so finally, we can't avoid what's going on in, in Ukraine at the moment. And I, I wonder what we could have done better post-Cold War when it comes to Russia to, to prevent us being where Russia is as a country today and its effect on global stability. What could have happened after the Berlin Wall came down that we could all have done, you know, Western Europe and the United States, to have prevented Putin? Who could have done better, of course, you know, probably the decision to consider uh, in 2006 and seven Georgia and Ukraine uh, joining NATO was the last draw that led uh, Putin to think that, you know, the, the West was trying to encircle Russia. But, you know, the West was never a threat to the territorial integrity of Russia. The idea that there would be a 
Polish or German or Ukrainian invasion of uh, Russia is totally far-fetched. You know, Russia is a landmass that even without the Ukraines and zones of the world uh, is spanning 11 time zones. You have only 160 million people having to control a landmass greater than China, India, Europe, US uh, together. Uh, Russia has to worry about keeping its own country together, let alone controlling is near abroad. So unfortunately, maybe we could have done it the margin better. We should have tried to integrate economically Russia in Europe, make it part of the European Union, even of NATO. And there were ideas along those lines. And I think people have been supportive. It's just that Russia, for its own history, has always been authoritarian under the Tsars, under the Bolsheviks, and after a very tiny short window of a decade of pseudo-democracy went back to authoritarian and to imperial and wanted to have an empire. But China, Russia today cannot afford that empire. It's delusional. So I blame mostly Putin and Russia for this deterioration. There were tactical mistakes that the West made. We could have done it better. I'm not sure if we would have radically changed the fact that Putin believed that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a historic catastrophe for Russia, and he tried to undo it and failed to do so. How do you see Russia's future over the next decade then? How do you expect it to develop? I think it's a bit of a disaster, you know. Given the war with Ukraine, Western Europe is not going to be hostage to Russian energy anymore under any condition. They'll find alternative sources of natural gas and oil, and there are. And all the pipelines go to Europe, and moving that natural gas to Asia is going to be much more expensive. Given the technological sanction, not only its military is crippled, but its economy is going to be crippled. You know, China at least can develop its own domestic semiconductor as high tech. Russia is close to nothing. So this past year, Russia's contraction was only 3.5% because uh, the shock to commodities spiked commodity prices. But two years from now, Russia is going to be in huge, huge terminal decline in a country where potential growth was only one and a half percent. And that strategic alliance between Russia and China is going to be a nightmare because, you know, there are only 15 million people in Siberia and uh, landmass is huge. And because of climate change, 1.4 billion Chinese have to move north. You already have hundreds of thousands of Chinese farmers buying land, colonizing it, Belt and Road Initiative infrastructures. And the local Siberian women prefer to marry Chinese men because the Russians are drunk and are young. So, and you know, in law, 95% uh, of uh, property is possession, right? If I possess something, it's mine unless proven otherwise. So I think eventually Siberia is going to be taken over by China. The only ones who could maybe try to guarantee the territorial integrity of Russia will be Europe, US, and the West. But uh, Russia is going in bed with, uh, with China, and that's going to be a strategic disaster. So you could have a collapse of that regime, collapse of the country, could have fragmentation of the countries, many states, the same way you get the fragmentation of the Soviet Union, and you could have China taking over Siberia in, in due time. So I think what they've done in Ukraine has been a total economic and strategic uh, disaster. And now, 
Ben Page, the global CEO of Ipsos Mori. Ben, welcome to the podcast. This must be the first time we've done a live interview with someone in his snow boots and crampons live from Davos, where you've just arrived hot foot from Turkey. Now, I'm very interested in the research that you've done at Ipsos for Davos specifically. And one of the things I wanted to start with is your discovery that there is a frustration that's now fueling debate about the very role of business and capitalism in the West and whether it is the best system that will benefit all of us together. It's certainly true that we are in a period where the, the, the sort of consensus is, is sort of fractured. Uh, in a sense, I would, I'm, I'm quite with the Gramsci quote, you know, the old order is dying and the new, the new order is not yet ready to be born. It does feel like we are in a period of, of change and we don't know what the new will be. The poly crisis is now the cliche that everybody is, the Davos folk and the World Economic Forum have picked up on. I think one of your interviewees, Martin Wolf, is already saying he's fed up with it. But it is true that the last, this, this last 20 years has seen a, what, what, what I would describe as the loss of the future. And that loss of confidence in the West, but not in Asia, is driving a lot of the re revolution, populism, if you like, or, or you could say uh, pathologies, if you were more of a, a social democrat uh, point of view, to be honest. So, but, I, but at the same time, I wouldn't, I do think we need to retain a sense of perspective. I mean, so yes, people are, are very distrusting of governments these days, and in, in fact, more distrusting of governments than they are of business interestingly, overall, globally. But, you know, the high point of trust in government, and we looked at this um, one or two years ago, uh, was actually during the 1950s under Eisenhower in America, where people were terrified about reds under the beds, nuclear obliteration happening at any moment, where it was illegal to be gay, where the country was racially segregated, literally, uh, in parts of the South. And, you know, people had just come through World War Two, where you, you really did have to do what you were told, and you perhaps you were also all in it together. And then, of course, during the 1960s, uh, with the Vietnam War, Watergate, the fuel crisis, we saw declines in trust in government. But to be honest, I think that the point about trust in institutions is that um, it can grow. And where there are new governments, trust actually goes up. And we see that repeatedly. And we've seen that over the last decade. And the, the problem in democracies and the, the lack of trust in institutions is not a new problem. Uh, it is a chronic problem. I wouldn't necessarily say it was particularly acute, except that it's um, this, this loss of the future where people now don't expect, in many cases, their kids to be better off than them, that is fueling people's dissatisfaction and looking around, first of all, for somebody to blame, but also for easy answers. And that is a very you know, clear pattern. And all of the things that drove Donald Trump to win in America and drove the British to vote for Brexit and, and for Mrs. Le Pen to do so well in France, all of those underlying conditions haven't gone away, even if you know, Joe Biden won and even if there was, wasn't a red wave in the midterm elections in America. The underlying conditions of anxiety about the future, the end of personal growth in terms of your disposable income. That's the fundamental challenge that we're, we're facing. What it 
actually leads to in terms of new politics, I think this is what I, where I go back to Gramsci. We're too close to the trees at the moment to see the forest. But I wouldn't, I, you know, it, it's also worth noting, finally, I am talking for too long. It's also worth noting that actually, despite all of the upheavals in most countries, most people still say globalization is good for their country. And most people still believe in democracy, even if they don't always like how it's working at a particular time. But your statistic that 72% of people expect government to let them down in the future is an extraordinary one. I mean, that's almost three quarters. It seems to illustrate a profound disillusion with with democratic capitalism. Well, I think people, it's not just, but remember, and this is a global survey, so it also includes autocracies where it's safe for us to answer the, ask the question without being arrested. I think two things. One is that people are sceptical about government. And the problem about government, of course, is that it's run by politicians. And people have a pretty low opinion of politicians pretty much everywhere. It hasn't got much worse in recent years, but it certainly hasn't improved. And so, you know, that people are always, always have relatively low expectations. I think what is heightening it is this fear of inflation eating away at incomes, this period of austerity that we went through in many countries after the global financial crash of 2008. So public services have been, you know, have had, public spending has been restrained in many countries. And the sort of deal that people expected, you know, you pay your taxes and you get things, you know, that that's all up, up for grabs. So it's, it's a combination. It's not just the institution on its own. It's a combination of that. And of course, people's concerns about inflation and, of course, their ability to spend, etc. So it's, it's the combination of those things together coming out of the pandemic. It, it's, it is worth keeping a sense of perspective, though, because if we look at overall consumer confidence, it has fallen now, but it's, you know, in many countries still better than it was um, in, say, 2012. So it's not, it's not the sort of, you know, we aren't, again, we, we, we always need to keep a sense of perspective. But yes, it's, it's true that we are in a, a difficult period. And I do think the 2020s are a difficult period. But I, I, is it the end of democracy? I, I don't think so. I mean, it's the, I'm with Winston Churchill. You know, democracy is the worst system and, until you've tried all the others. It is interesting, though, the other statistic that's, that stands out from your recent research is that 56% of those that you surveyed want strong leaders over the current government. And I mean, that's a classic sort of populist line, isn't it? That's what Mussolini promised in Italy in the 1930s. And, you know, what the generals tend to promise, you know, in countries in the past, such as, you know, Greece and Portugal, South America, when democracy is perceived to be failing. Yes, and it's a sense of that frustration that it's, it's, it's harder in our societies to reach consensus. Part of the, the challenge is that Western societies are, are becoming more and more heterogeneous. They're much less homogenous than they were 50 or 60 years ago. If you look at income distribution in the UK, for example, and compare how income distribution varied in the early 1960s compared to now, what you have to visualize, and we're doing this as a podcast, so you're going to have to visualize it, is in the early 1960s, it's like a sort of big mountain, and most people are clustered around a center, central point. And so the rain, although there are very rich people and very poor people, overall, the average, the average experience is quite average. What you now see 
is in many societies a much, a, it would, you have to imagine instead of the mountain, a series of sort of rather lovely rolling hills that stretching for quite a long way on the same chart. And so the lived experience between the top 10 or 20% of the population and, you know, the middle and the average starts to become more and more dif- you know, different and diverse. And then, of course, you have migration. We can argue about that. But again, all of this means that it becomes harder to reach consensus on an, in, in a democracy. And that, uh, you know, and the polarization in America, we can talk about that, the fragmentation, as I would have it, in the UK, again, make, makes it harder for the politicians to please anybody. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson tried cakeism. The problem is it, you know, ultimately doesn't work. You know, you can, you can have everything and low taxes and public services and reduced debt. Well, strangely, you can't. But the, 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 the attraction of populism, which you've just referred to, this idea of a strong leader, is attractive when people are angry, want somebody to blame. And when somebody pops up with lots of apparently simple answers, like getting Brexit done and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, on, the, on the right or on the left, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, just nationalise everything and, you know, tax the rich more, it will all be fine. Those are all attractive answers. But the, the challenge is, A, that populism tends not to work too well when it meets the reality of governing. And secondly, you're trying to please a more and more diverse population um, who have, in some ways, you know, less in common. And I think it takes time to work out. It's funny that Germany, you know, we might say Germany is a, uh, you know, might be a bit, might have been a bit cl- close to to Russia, or a bit, a bit strange about China from some people's views in the West. But for the last five years, Germany, interestingly, rather boring its politics in some ways, has been seen as globally by people all over the world as the most attractive country. Uh, on a whole range of dimensions that we measure every single year. But of course, its politics are based on carefully worked through consensus. They've got a government at the moment with three different parties. Uh, In contrast, Britain, which has in one year managed to have three prime ministers and four finance ministers, uh, has dropped out of the top five most respected countries for the first time since we ever ran the study. Uh, still doing better than America, and obviously much better than someone like Russia. But it's, uh, I think it's a reminder that, you know, there is a lot to be said for consensus. But of course, you need, there is a, there's a bit of give and take. So to a certain extent, you could argue we get the politicians we deserve. I mean, I think what you're saying shows us that Abe Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address had it right, didn't he? For people to support it, it's got to be of the people, by the people and for the people. And what you've expressed there is the reason for the various degrees of disillusion that people feel removed from it they they don't feel it that that it's fair that the whole system is sort of rigged which is why i suppose the other thing that that tends to happen these days is the sort of enormous growth of conspiracy theories as as well when when linked to actions of the state and we saw that a lot during covid didn't we there's this fundamental disbelief that the state is actually there for our benefit well, I think, I mean, the conspiracy theories are really interesting. I mean, we've actually done some work, you know, done a whole load of work on it, partly because we were targeted, because we were involved in very large scale COVID testing programs. And so people who believed, like my late gardener who died of COVID, who was a, he believed it was a conspiracy. And so, yes, but the, I, what I find interesting about conspiracy theories is that what they, what they really are is about people's and inability to control situations. And so the attractiveness of conspiracy theories, like the idea that at the World Economic Forum, people like me come here to receive our instructions on this great plot of the the new world order, when I can tell you that the only orders taken in Davos are for food and drink. 
the attractiveness of it is that there is somehow, even though the world is chaotic and, and that suddenly a disease can arise in a few months, kill you know millions of people and nobody seemed to know about it coming or have predicted it so but the idea of a conspiracy is great because it means actually human beings ultimately do have agency even if you don't like it even if it's evil somebody is somewhere actually knows what's going on and can control things and that's a and it's a sort of slightly morbid um, byproduct of feeling a lack of control and of course brexit gave us one of the best political phrases ever take back control so there's a there's a sort of link with all of these things it's the same almost with anti-semitism in the 1930s another product of post-world war one anxiety being picked up and used by politicians in various countries well so to conclude do you think that you feel a degree of optimism then that you that technological advance might help with climate change and and that we we will find it within ourselves internationally to get over what is a particularly rough patch at the moment it's it's tricky because you would be foolish to say everything's going to be okay the i believe in climate change and the most of the hottest years ever have been in the last decade or so and we're only just getting going if we all left the planet tomorrow and went off to live somewhere else the world would go on getting hotter for another 30 years and then take another 30 years after that to return to the temperature we're at today and we we don't have the ability to leave or, or stop using petrol tomorrow so there are some you know it's some fundamental challenges I, I do think in the absolute long term if we get through the 21st century and there's a big if um, and some of your other correspondence, of course, point to the things. Population will, will tend to shrink because as women get educated, they have fewer children. As people get educated, they have fewer children. You can see that all over the world. Uh, we might get back to a sustainable level. I mean, I, you know, we were terribly, when I was growing up, I was terribly worried about nuclear war blowing us up. Before that, when I was just about conscious, we were worried about all the food and minerals and oil running out by the year 2000. So I don't think we should just say, yes, you know, hydrogen uh, and uh, renewables will somehow fix all our problems and it's all going to be fine. But we do, you know, the, the, the very fact that we're having this conversation and the very fact that humanity keeps worrying is in itself a uh, an example of how humanity has managed to take took over the world in the first place what we do is worry so it's it's the natural order of things that we should be concerned about the future there are plenty of chances that we will manage to obliterate ourselves but at the same time we have had a tendency for my entire lifetime and i'm 58 to think that disaster is coming around the corner and there's only been a relatively short period perhaps from early 1990s to around the to the global financial crash where we were sort of feeling a bit more optimistic although the war on terror of course be, began during that period after 2001 so i think we're we are naturally tuned to worry we do have some really huge crises facing us but on the other hand one has to be optimistic because otherwise one would just give up and and stop and finally, Ethna O'Leary from Stiefel. I wanted to start with a question for you about the degree of connection of participation within democratic capitalism, because there was a piece of research that Pew did recently, which suggested that a median of 70%, 70% of adults that they surveyed across 19 countries say that their children are going to be worse off than, than, than they were. And I wondered... 
to what extent that sort of points at the one of the fundamental problems with with it as a system in that it hasn't really in recent years delivered what it did possibly in the in the better years post-war up until the 80s it's an interesting question about how you connect to those things because it's not entirely certain nor does it follow that that democracy has to be the economic model within that has to be capitalism because you you can have other alternatives but we're all of the view i think that that is the best arrangement for the economy and for society is that it's democratic capitalism but what we're not being honest about in my view is what you need in order for both elements of that to work so for the economy to work and for democracy to work you need participation and it's interesting that you say that that it it ran well post-war up until the 80s and the 80s were where from a reaganist and thatcherite perspective things started to in my view possibly unravel which is that the benefits of capitalism and growth post the 80s they mostly returned to people who owned things. They didn't necessarily provide prosperity to, to people who were supplying labor, for example. And if you stand back from that and, and say, what does that really mean? Is it doesn't matter? It does matter because mostly the people supplying labor in an economy are the people who vote. So if you, you need prosperity to be widely spread, in my view, for capitalism to have the consent of the people who are involved in it from an economic perspective. And that hasn't I been the case, I don't think. There is this sort of disillusion, isn't there? there? And it's, you know, in the States and here, it's a sort of a blue collar disillusion. It's the left behinds, isn't it? And that, it's it's you know, that lack of, it's the lack of participation it's the fact that 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 capitalism hasn't worked for the bulk of the population if you go back over the last 30 to 40 years I, I honestly I you could be more cynical about it than than I might necessarily be and say that actually trickle down economics there's no evidence as far as I can see that that really works but it is the cloak that conservative politics uses in order to justify continuing down the same path of concentrating those gains and returns with a small number of people and i i think it is dishonest to be perfectly yeah. honest, to be straight about uh, it i think it is dishonest and how fragile does it does it feel to you at the moment because both martin and nuriel are you know they're quite academic and I wonder, you know, as you know, running an organisation within a real economy, does does the whole system feel quite fragile to you at the moment? Because you know, the, the word that we're hearing at the moment is polycrisis. It's you know, it's multifaceted the problems that that we're in. So, but it, it, in a in a practical sense, how how has it impacted on you running your organisation in Europe? Well, I think I'm more optimistic than Muriel and, and Martin, but that, I guess you'd probably argue that isn't that isn't that difficult, really, on the balance of what they've been saying. <laughs> but the reason I'm more optimistic, and this is going to sound this is going to sound odd, so certainly from let's start from a UK perspective and being more optimistic about it. I think I'm encouraged 
in a way, and this will be controversial, by the fact that workers are acting in their own interests at the moment and seeking to get better paid at a moment where there is real debate and wide debate amongst people and society about the cost of living. I think that's a good thing. Now, I'm not saying it's not personally inconvenient, but I think it's a good thing for the first time in a long time to see labour and people acting in a concerted way in order to improve their lot. I think that's good. And I think there's good that there, there is debate about it. So there are reasons to be optimistic because it's right that those people should be able to extract a cost of living increase that allows them to live well. I think that's a good thing. There are reasons to be optimistic about that in a UK context, in my view. So that's the first thing to say. It doesn't make my job managing a business easier. It certainly doesn't. But I, I, I think it's right that that debate is being had. The second thing, and the reason to be more optimistic about it, is that there is, I think, a growing sense here that the Brexit rope was wrong and that the basis on which it was sold was inaccurate at best and probably misleading at worst and deliberately misleading. But I think people realise, the ordinary man on the street knows that their vote was and remains important. So to the extent that they believed what they were being told or they didn't question the motives of those that were promoting Brexit, maybe that was the wrong thing, but their vote mattered. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, from a participation standpoint, it's very difficult to argue that votes aren't important now because I think most people realise that that was a mistake. I think that's an interesting point, that, because I think what, what you're suggesting is that people have woken up and they, they're probably wiser and, and feel more agency now than they did five, ten years ago. So I think in the UK, that's going to mean that the next, the next election in a couple of years' time is going to be critical, isn't it? I think, I think it does, but I think that's, that's right. The word you're using in terms of agency it is right. I think people know that they can influence things. So yes, their votes do matter. Um, and I think that that's encouraging that if you go out more widely into the world, there are other reasons to be encouraged. I, I you know, in terms of how other forms of government, aside from democracy, have actually performed. 2022 wasn't a great year for the autocrats in the world, particularly. Mm. Vladimir Putin rolled into the Ukraine in a terrible way, but it hasn't gone that well for him. I think it's curious that in the UK, when people are talking about our Prime Minister Sunak and the leader of the opposition, Starmer, then there's that cheap shot of them being accused of being managerial, that they're sort of somehow lacking in sort of charisma and what have you. But I think that's the very point. And we talked about this a lot before. They Managerialism impl implies, you know, sort of thoughtful competence, doesn't it? You know, not, not going off in, in excessive directions, but being focused and, and and considered. And I think that that's not a bad thing. And 
in 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 an interesting way, I think people are coming to recognise that as well that they want that competence, don't they? I I I think they do. It it does it it does matter. And again, if you were going back through the last five or six years, well, probably six years in terms of democratic events in the UK, the 2019 election when the electorate chose Boris Johnson. I mean, I think a lot of people have come to regret that choice as well. Um, And charisma, which is based on such a weak foundation with absolute mendacity behind it, is damaging. And I, I, I think I think the electorate has also worked that out. Competence may be dull, but slightly so what? We kind of do need it. In the political realm, you know, the the acceptance, if it doesn't work, of of defeat, if you don't if you don't get what you want during the court, you know, an, an election, then at least having some degree of respect for the other side, which of course didn't didn't happen in the states after the last one. Yes, it did happen in the states after the last one, and it hasn't happened in the, in a more extreme sense. It hasn't happened in Brazil either, although it, it does appear that things are starting to finally calm down. But there's there's something about the nature of how politics has has moved, which is that looking at it in that zero sum game way, which is to some degree, what Brexit was, what Trump was, what Johnson was. It's not a zero-sum game. It's a collective endeavour. And if you want to believe in democracy, then it is a collective endeavour, as messy as it is. But you can't just keep peddling through other people's opposition and deciding that you're right, which in a, in a trust way is exactly what happened. You know, it's not that she wasn't told that what she was about to do would be ruinously expensive and disastrous for a lot of people. She just thought she knew better. There's a brittleness to that inability to recognize that you might be wrong. Tragic in some respects, but it is, it is brittle. Well, it certainly was for her lasting only 44 days. You know, to go back to Lincoln again, you know, Wolf also quotes the better angels of our nature thing, which is an extraordinary expression, but really a powerful thought as well that we need to sort of stop. And, it's, you know, I suppose it's it's about listening to conscience as well, isn't it? What he's sort of implying there. I'm a big believer, as messy as it is, and it is messy and it can be genuinely irritating listening to people, um, a wide range of views, and it can take a long time to get to a consensus answer. And sometimes that can be frustrating, but it's almost always worth it as messy as that is it, it's it's taking different points of view and by doing so including people and binding people into the final decision because they feel they've been they've participated in the debate that yeah. has ended up producing that answer and therefore are more likely to embrace whatever this initiative is or whatever you're deciding to do and support yeah. it but in terms of mostly, most people want to try and do the right thing. Mostly. Going back to the better angels point, you can see from the debate that we've had about the last six to 12 months about the cost of living crisis. I mean, people do care that others can't heat their houses or feed their children. They do care about it. 
Around the world, powerful voices argue that capitalism is better without democracy and others that democracy is better without capitalism. What I think is certain is that for our system to survive, we're going to need much more of what Martin Wolf calls a civilized civil war. There's always going to be a tension there. Now, the relationship between liberal democracy and capitalism does change over time, as do the policies needed to make them mutually supportive. And not for the first time, changes in the structure of capitalism have lately moved far faster than the policies required to domesticate them. Liberal democratic governments at the moment all over the world are struggling to catch up. Many citizens are fed up, and we know that three quarters of the people surveyed by Pew recently across the globe think that their children are going to be worse off than they are, and that's a very bad position to be in. So what can Western societies and businesses do? For all its recent failings, Wolf argues, including slow growth and productivity, increasing inequality and widespread popular delusion, democratic capitalism is still the best system, not a mere slogan. But it does all seem a far cry from the optimistic days when Fukuyama in the early 1990s predicted the end of history with the good guys of liberal democracy having won. That struggle is certainly still not over. I'm Matthew Gwyther. Thank you for listening.